Daily Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 127, Without Precedent, by Owens Up, coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Without Precedent, by Owens Up. This is Carl Valeri with the Stuck Mike Avcast, and I'm joined with a very special guest, and that's Owen's Up. Owen has been on the podcast before, episode 104. He truly is an inspirational aviator from down under. You know, I'm recording this now at 3 p.m. my time. It's about 5 in the morning uh, down under, and uh, this is somebody that that I think everybody should read. You will get something out of some, you'll get some information that's educational, inspirational, uh, and it'll want you, it'll make you want to go find more about the topics he talks about. Owen, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carl. It's great to be here. Well, you know, Owen, we, we discuss aviation quite a bit on this podcast, but one of the things that I think is really important is uh, to discuss our background and the history of aviation. Uh, Without precedent is a really important piece because it's something which talks towards the aviation history of Australia, the aviation history of the war in Korea and the wars in general, and also a little bit of history in your past. But before we begin, a little bit about Owen. Boy, Owen, I, I know I introduced you there, but uh, you have really been busy uh, with over, what, 15,000, 16,000 hours of flight time, and you have a master's in aviation, have, uh, I think, up to nine books now is what we're at? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's around seven, and uh, there's an eighth one coming out very shortly okay, after was, this one. <laughs> pretty close there. Everything, you've done some amazing things, uh, fl- flown around Australia, uh, and uh, literally, flown around yeah. Australia, and that was part of a story in another book that you have, and we talked about that in episode 104, and uh, that one, that was uh, something that I've actually gone to and read again, it's called Solo Flight, and uh, that is that is a journey, uh, not just a physical journey, uh, a mental journey, and it's really an inspirational journey around Australia. I really highly recommend that. You can find that, by the way, uh, if you're listening to this right now and you want to find out about Owen's uh, books, etc., we have a link we set up at stuckmikeavcast.com slash owensup, and uh, that's with two P's on the end, owensup. And uh, it he has some amazing, amazing books out there and just a real inspirational website. So... One of the things, though, I, I want to talk about is is this book that that in, or just these books that inspired you to put this together. I think, in my mind, uh, you you seem to and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You seem to have had this book inside you and been wanting to do this from from what I could tell. Uh, why now and why this book? That's a great question, Carl, and that's probably one of the most um, common things that people ask me because it. To be perfectly honest, this book had its genesis from one question, and that was me asking, who is my father? Because he was a very quiet man, and yet I grew up aware that he'd served in World War II and Korea, but I really didn't know details. 
But as I started to gather those questions and get answers, I became aware that the story was rather significant. So in some ways, I started writing it around 1985 when when certain things came to uh, the surface. I probably hit the keyboard for the first time 10 years ago, and I've written six or so books since I started this one. Every time I thought I was getting close, another veteran came out of the woodwork or another file surfaced or another anecdote. And it was only, I'd say honestly, after about 10 years of interviewing people, researching and getting to the bottom of things that I think the book was really there to see the light of day. And it was one that I wasn't going to shortcut on. You can be rest assured of that. Yeah, and it's a very important piece uh, for for you and for the legacy of aviation. Uh, behind every great aviator, uh, there are people. And one of those really important people in your life was Philip Zupp, your dad, and uh, in many of our lives. And, and what, what this book does for me, it, it kind of enables me to look through a window into who you are. Uh, and and it's, been, it's been transformational for myself, just uh, the parts that I've read so far, and I'm trying to get through this. Uh, I was interrupted by diverting around a volcano. We'll talk about that later. But, boy, it, it really is a, an important piece for everybody to realize that there is so much in the past that, that we really need to try to get out of our, our parents and have them help us and, and move this forward and move our generation forward by having that information for, for many, many reasons. It discovers who we are, uh, but it also helps us discover where we're going in the future. And I hope you feel the same. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons it's having the success it is is because there is um, an underlying narrative there of a, a lad who grew up during the Great Depression and on a farm surrounded by drought, who, as he once said, I might as well have dreamt of going to the moon as ever learning to fly at that stage. And yet he um, was forced to leave school at a, a young age because they lost the farm and got a job at 13 years of age cleaning the inside of furnaces out at a foundry. And the underlying narrative is that even though you have those beginnings sometimes, if you're persistent, you don't have to be brilliant. If you're persistent and you have a dream, it can happen. And he, as he said, I might as well have dreamt of going to the moon, yet he ended up with around 23,000 hours and around 90 different aircraft types in his logbook that varied from biplanes to Mustang fighters to bombers to the super constellation. So it's that underlying narrative of, of a personal journey that is coloured by where that journey t- took him that I think is is hitting an audience because it's not just hitting military, it's not just hitting aviation people. Those people who like reading biographies are finding this um, interesting, and I think it's that underlying narrative. And in the cover of that, that, that narrative comes throughout uh, just by the way you put the subtitle, Commando, Fighter Pilot, and True Story of Australia's First Purple Heart. You, you do take us through that journey of a lifetime. You know, one of the things you just said, you know, a lot of people think I might as well thought of going to the moon. Uh, yeah. Persistence and perseverance is something that I think all of us will learn from both yourself and, and of course, uh, from your father. And when we're looking at things, whether it's aviation careers or any career or anything in life, uh, wanting to learn how to ski, want to learn how to climb a mountain, uh, this this actually enables people uh, to actually get reach into their soul and realize that, you know, you're not alone. Someone else has felt that way, and they were able to go forward. Um, but, you know, let, let's move back. Let's go back in the book here. 
yeah. one of the things that I really loved is the fact that for for history buffs and for people that love uh, an exciting story, you start off right with a punch in the beginning yeah. of this book, and and that's that's I think maybe that was by design. Uh, but we, I absolutely, I couldn't stop reading uh, right when I started there. Like I said, I, I really uh, I had to divert. <laughs> we, we talked yeah. we're both airline pilots. I had to divert because there was an old volcano ash coming out <laughs> of this one volcano in Central America. But I uh, I had to put the book down. I was like, gosh darn, you know, I I really uh, I can't. I can't wait to jump into it again. Uh, this, the way your prose, you're, you're, you, you do a great job, and you truly are a wordsmith. Um, but this is this is not a story. This is a true to life story. So tell us a little bit of what how how you begin this journey in this book, and then and then where you move on from there. Yeah, well, the first chapter is is pivotal in a number of ways, which which become obvious. But it's about a mission that he flew in Korea, in which one of his squadron mates was shot down. He was called down to search for that aircraft. And this is one of the uh, stories within the book where I ended up going through about two or three different archival sources for files to get the real story. But they sent him to one search area, couldn't find the aircraft, another search area. And then he finally got to the area that they wanted him to go to and they couldn't find the parachute or the aircraft. He then took off up the road at low level at around 300 knots to try and guide another search aircraft in, but the anti-aircraft fire, there was one chap there who'd done two tours of Korea, and he said it was as heavy anti-aircraft fire as he'd ever seen. And Dad went through it once, couldn't find the other aircraft, so he turned back and came down the road again through the anti-aircraft fire for a second time. And just as he got to the end of um, this search area, he saw something red on the snow. And in those days, they used to wear marker scars tucked into their flying suits around their collars. And they'd lie those out on the snow if they went down. And he just turned at only a couple of hundred feet above the, the snow when he got hit by uh, ground fire. And it blew his canopy off. It blew his goggles askew his face, and, and as did his oxygen mask. And he almost put a wingtip in the snow as he um, heaved back on the stick and went for the sky. One of his thoughts was that uh, he was looking out and all he could see was white. And he thought, I hope that's cloud, not snow. And he recovered the aircraft without a canopy, which one can imagine how noisy and cold that was in Korea at 300 knots, and managed to get back to base. So that opening chapter describes that moment. And it's, it's pivotal because the Americans who were back at the base hospital were very impressed by the Australian who flew the aeroplane with the top down. And they made a recommendation for an award that no Australian had ever received before, uh, the, the Purple Heart. And that wasn't known by my father till 1985. It was re recommended by all governments, all representatives, but was the authority to wear that medal was actually blocked by someone in an office in London. So the story, that's just a, another narrative, but so that opening chapter ties together the action of Korea and the diplomatic wrangling that happened over this decoration that the Americans wanted this Australian pilot to have. And and through perseverance was was able to to wear that and uh, that was many years later, uh, yeah. About, <laughs> but you know what's what's interesting about that is the fact that you know you put politics aside and you say you know this is somebody who deserves to wear that, and, and he does. Uh, and it when what started that journey? I'm kind of curious why why 1985. I was a paramedic at the time, 
and I had taken a passenger, uh, passenger you can tell I fly airplanes now, I'd taken a patient to a hospital <laughs> and I had to wait about two or three hours for them to be discharged. So I went to the government publishing office and there was a volume uh, commissioned by the Australian government of the Australian operations in the Korean War. So as I flicked through the back, it had a list of all the decorations won by Australians and there was my father with his oak leaf cluster for mention in dispatches, and he was also awarded the American Air Medal. Different, and then the one single line, one single man, Purple Heart, and I'd never heard a story that he'd been awarded it. There wasn't one in his drawer. There was nothing to be known about it except this one reference, and that is what started it. And it ended up being a file nearly an inch thick, and as I said, diplomatic wrangling between our own Prime Minister's office um, and the United States and this, this office in, in Britain that was blocking it uh, from the Commonwealth. And that's what, what where the title Without Precedent came from, is that this award in one of the communiques said is without precedent in the war of 39-45 or Korea. So that's where the title came from. And when you did this research and, and you saw this about your father, that strikes a chord with myself and everybody listening here we're all we're into aviation but you know we all wonder about our backgrounds of our our parents etc you know my father was a veteran there's many listeners right now that have parents that are veterans that have that don't talk really about their service and and you know i, I know from myself the the stories my dad told me were were short uh and he downplayed them often did, did you have that same experience when you were younger? Absolutely. Absolutely. He, um, everything that he told me only started when I became what he saw as a grown man. When I became a paramedic and, and he thought I was of age, he would discuss these things if I probed. But the true extent of what he actually did, I really was only able to piece together by tying in the other stories of veterans the combat records, the operations records, and the narratives also when he'd been interviewed by intelligence officers on return from a mission. So I could take these passing references that I'd made notes of and then place them in a logbook or a file. And in fact, chapter one was perfectly written. I thought, there it is, it's good to go. And a veteran came out and said, I was there that day. I really, he said, yeah. And that was the veteran I mentioned who said, He'd done two tours and had never seen anti-aircraft fire that thick. And so I rewrote Chapter 1 based on a couple of details that he brought to the table. Well, it was only a, a sentence here or a paragraph there, but I wanted it to be right. But you're quite right. They were very reticent about their service. I always say that my father, he treated it, it was treasured but tucked away. He's got citations, etc., but they're all just glued in his logbook. They're not framed. They're not out there. He never marched on our version of Memorial Day, but he went to the sunrise service every year. Uh, so he was he valued his service and he remembered it, but it was something that he tucked away rather than advertised, I'd have to say. And that, that's a point I want to make is that, you know, those of us that have parents and siblings and loved ones that have served, uh, just because they don't speak about it often doesn't mean they aren't proud and they don't think about it because many times they're thinking about it every day and and they are proud of their service and everybody has their way of communicating that and showing uh, their appreciation 
and and also showing their care for those that they either lost or those that they fought with in the war. Uh, it just just because your your father or my father or anybody's parents and uh, family members don't continually talk about it doesn't mean that it's not uh, not in their in their minds. And and I, I think the me- the best thing we can do is, is just let them let them talk when they want to. But but just realize what they did for us as veterans and our brothers and sisters in Australia. I'm in America right now in the U.S. and throughout the world where we fought together in, in many of these wars. Uh, we really appreciate what they've done, and and they know that. Uh, but it's nice to say that every so often. But but just because they don't talk about it doesn't mean that it's not close to their heart. And uh, I think that's really important because uh, you bring this out, too, in this book, which I think is uh, something that I, just just looking at all the different things that, that your father has done and uh, and the stories there, it's, it's amazing how a, a lot of this, from what I can tell and what I've read, ties into his and then your uh, persona and who you are. Absolutely. And I think you—, you hit a very valid point there in terms of how they express it in that I remember as a, a young boy growing up, we often would go for it, these afternoon teas or morning teas at these old ladies' houses or et cetera, et cetera, people who I had no idea who they were. And as I got older, I got a sense of it. And as I researched the book, I understood it. In so many cases, they were the mothers or the widows of people my father had served with who'd been killed in action or in a couple of cases killed in aircraft accidents and that. And we still stayed in touch with those people until I was a grown man. My father and my mother would go to these people's places and have morning teas or have them over or take them out. So that was another way in which I think they remembered their service was that they never forgot those who didn't come home. And I think in a lot of ways, Dad's squadron lost between one in three and one in four pilots who served. It was about 130-odd pilots, I think, served with the squadron, and they lost around 40. So it was a fairly high attrition rate. And uh, these people who, at the time, as a young child who was fidgeting in the corner, I suspect, I didn't realise, but what he and my mother were doing were keeping one eye on the mothers and the widows of those who didn't make it home. And that was very special, but it was never expressed to me in that way. And it's expressed so, much differently, isn't it? In, it in is, action. And absolutely. And I think that then in turn, when he became terminally ill, uh, fighter pilots who probably hadn't seen him for 40 years came out of the woodwork to visit him. And pilots from all uh, stages of his career, people he taught to fly who ended up flying for Qantas and, and air ambulance pilots, etc. And that brotherhood or sisterhood of, of aviation returned the favour when he wasn't well, that they, they came out of the woodwork and all couldn't do enough to help him. It truly really is a brotherhood that, and a bond that some, some of us have a tough time understanding, uh, yeah. but, but we admire. Uh, Absolutely. And it, it transcends words because my father was a man of very, very few words, but his loyalty to these people and their loyalty to him, you just couldn't mistake it. One thing about your father is that... Uh, you look back at his background. There's there's a lot of things that that you found out about what he had done. I mean, the fact that that he was uh, actually somebody who was uh, I guess what it, what they would call an infantryman here, or uh, somebody who who actually served and not just flying. He was in the service doing other things. What what else did he do in the service besides just flying? He he had a very um, uh, diverse career. He 
firstly was trained as a navigator in the Air Force, and then with the invasions of uh, Europe on D-Day, they worked out that they had sufficient air crew, so he was told, we don't need air crew. You can have another job within the Air Force, you can have a discharge, or you can change services. So he changed to the Army. He was trained in the infantry. And one thing I didn't know until very late in life was that they spotted him at infantry training and sent him for further training to become a commander. He was then, which is effectively, I guess you'd say these days, the term is special forces. Right. He was then sent to New Guinea as a commando for the, the closing weeks, months of the war where he served. And from there, when the surrender had taken place, he went as one of the first troops that landed in Hiroshima after the bomb. And he spent nearly uh, 18 months in Japan, in Hiroshima and a, a posting in Tokyo. And it was only when he came back to Australia that he uh, was a bit of a drifter. He went around cutting sugarcane by hand for a year before he re-enlisted as an Air Force mechanic. And then he was re-mustered they, as a pilot ultimately. So his military journey was really a navigator with the Air Force in World War II, a commando with the Army in New Guinea, Post-war, he was one of the first troops into Hiroshima after the detonation of the atomic bomb. And after a year of uh, civil life, he returned as an Air Force mechanic and ultimately became a fighter pilot. So he had a fair um, exposure to different branches of the services. Quite the jack of all trades. Yeah, he would say master of none. <laughs> oh, but but he, he mastered one thing, and that's being being a, a great role model for you. And, and Absolutely. Uh, and we appreciate that because I never got to to meet your dad. I'd thank him for for sending somebody like yourself to this earth that that is so passionate about life and somebody who who really is passing forward uh, <laughs> that that heritage and and your past. It's it's really wonderful to to see that in you. And and like I said, it's like a it's like a glass window, and yeah. uh, in seeing through this book, you know, when you talked about coming home, he um he actually stayed with aviation, did he not? He did. He came back um, from Korea. He became a flight instructor. I think he might have had a week or two off before he went into instructor training. Uh, from there, he returned to fighter jets. This is all in peacetime back in Australia. And just the way that the military was structured at that time, he couldn't get married quarters anywhere near the base. He'd become married. The mother had their first child. And the military life just wasn't sort of tying in, so he, he left the military. And I think he always, in a way, regretted that because he did enjoy that brotherhood. He then became a civil instructor, and then he went into Qantas, flying uh, airliners internationally on the Super Constellation. But once again, there were trips where he was away for six weeks at a time. And with a young family, in the end, he resigned from that and went to a domestic airline flying DC-3s. And unfortunately, after about a year or two, they, he was surplus to requirements and he was retrenched. So he went back into general aviation. He flew Mustangs towing targets for the military. He taught the Qantas cadet trainees. Uh, he was cloud seeding, making rain, flew commuter airlines. But probably his most significant uh, later stage career was he spent a decade flying the aerial ambulance slash flying doctor operation where he was single pilot in a beach Queen Air, King Air, uh, flying to remote regions of the state, uh, doing medical duties. Yeah, you know, it seems to me that being around all this aviation, his children 
would obviously get into aviation is uh, I'm trying to think, is there any time in your life that you weren't around airplanes? No, no. And yet my brother didn't follow that road. He's, he's at times a nervous passenger. But um, no, I can remember we, we had what we called a clothes horse. It was a, a frame that we'd hang clothes on to dry out uh, in those inside on those wet days. And I used to climb inside that as young as I can remember. And it was a bit wonky to move left and right. And that was, I'd sit inside that as if it was a cockpit. And I'd sit in there for an hour as a little little boy and think it was a Mustang or something. So as, as far as back as I can remember, I'll be surrounded by aviation. And that was a significant impact on you. But let's go back to what you said about your brother. And this, this is an important point, is a, a parent that is incredibly passionate about something, uh, like your father, and aviation being his passion, obviously. Uh, yeah. Also is very supportive of somebody who who wants to do something else besides what they do. And uh, what's most important, and I tell people this, is that do what you love to do and do what you enjoy. Uh, And by having that passion, I think, is a great example for all the other people in your life to go into those things that they're passionate about, whether it's being a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or or a, a, a parent, whatever that may be. And that's something that seems to be, you know, the, the, the theme within this book is is it, it doesn't matter who these people are, he, or, and, and this is something that I gleaned from it, it doesn't matter what job they had. He, he actually, w- throughout this book, was proud of all those people in his life and his family. Yeah, and, and as we get back to it, it's, it's really about passion and persistence. Whatever you do, whatever you undertake, what you, whether you serve in World War II as a commando and fly fighters and crew is, is, is a function of things beyond your control. That's the function of your time, of your life. But what you can control is the passion you have for something and the persistence because there will be hurdles. And I looked at my daughter, she's 13 the other day, she went and sung at an open mic night at a cafe. Now, I wouldn't sing. (laughs) I I could not imagine doing that, but that's where her passion is. And although I don't understand how one could stand up at 13 in front of a cafe full of people and sing, I'm fully supportive of it because that's where her passion is and that's where she'll overcome her hurdles and her persistence. And I think that's, once again, the underlying narrative in, in Without Precedent. Yes, there is combat action. Yes, there is airline flying. Yes, there are all of these things. But it is a country boy who was pulled out of school at a young age and never lost sight of the fact that he wanted to fly. And it's a, it's a tale of passion and persistence as much as it is a, a military biography, I think, at times. Yes, passion, persistence, perseverance, it's, it's very important, and that comes throughout this book, and uh, I'm glad you made that point, because I think everybody that reads this book can learn from your, the past, Phil's past and your father's past, uh, from, from his passion, but also from the fact that whatever, whether getting knocked down in an airplane or knocked down in life, uh, he always got up and tried again. That, never that is the important thing, because these things will happen. We'll always have obstacles. We'll have disappointment. And I think how we deal with those defines our character far more than how we deal with the success. Uh, It's the persistence to get back up. One of the things in the book that he talks about was his first military interview before he went for um, air crew training that got him in as a navigator. 
and he was sitting in the waiting room and there were all these boys who had these good educations and had been captain of the equivalent of the baseball or the football team. And he had none of that because he'd been forced to leave school when they lost the farm. And he fumbled through his interview until they asked him to explain how does a wind storm. And all of a sudden within him, this confidence, because he knew what he was talking about, came out. Now, that was pivotal. Equally, he kept getting knocked back for pilot training because he didn't have an education. And a commanding officer, when he was a mechanic, walked up behind him and said, apply one more time. And I found in the files that that commanding officer personally recommended him for pilot training. So if he had applied for a pilot's course once and said, they've knocked me back, I'm not doing it, it never would have happened. But he continued to apply. He spent his wages to learn to fly privately outside the military, and he got his dream. But at any point, any of those hurdles could have scared him off or disappointed him. Uh, the life he had never would have eventuated. You know, Owen, as I'm listening to that, I uh, on, on another podcast, Aviation Careers Podcast, we get people that write in and say, you know, I, I failed an exam. Uh, I didn't make a stage check. I didn't. I wasn't able to move forward. But now I have to retake the exam. Should I? I, I didn't pass my training at the airline, and I have to start over again. I I think by reading this, uh, I would tell them, and I tell them anyway, is just just try again. Just keep trying it. Keep going forward. It doesn't matter how many times Absolutely. you get knocked down. And and I think it's helpful by reading this book, and I want to give you a, a personal story here. Remember I said something about a volcano in the beginning. Yeah. I, uh, I, before, when I was reviewing this book, I, uh, I read a chapter, and then I had to get in the airplane and fly down uh, to uh, Costa Rica. And on the way down there, I, uh, I just finished chapter two, the first to land. And on the way yep. there, uh, there was a, a volcano started erupting, you know, spewing ash. And we had to divert. And we got to the other airport uh, in Costa Rica, and I landed, and I was I was really upset. Not upset the fact that we diverted, et cetera, but I was upset because of the passengers, and I felt so horrible. I felt so I put myself in their shoes and said, you know what, this is this is this is really bad. This is this is not. I'm mission driven. I want to make it there. Yes. But you know what? Sometimes we just don't make it to where we want to go. Sometimes we land somewhere else, and it was just crazy because right then I thought about the first to land, chapter two. And uh, sometimes our landings aren't necessarily where we think they're going to be. No, and, no. And, and that's being mission-driven, being mission-driven, as you say, is, is both the strength and the weakness of so many pilots. It's our Achilles heel. It is. And it's the one where we have to step back sometimes and go, yes, I know these people have to get to weddings, funerals, birthdays. I really want to get them there. But then you have to weigh up the safety aspect. And that is where pilots can be their, their best friend or their worst enemy at times because – the thing that gets us to the destination 99% of the time can be the driving force that throws that little element of, of complacency. So we have to step back and go, no, what is the safest option? But that's a that's a great story, Carl, because that, that is, I think, one of the, the greatest challenges in, in being a pilot in command is, is being mission-driven but knowing when to step back in the interest of safety. It is. And I, I tell you, the one, the one thing I remember – about that whole incident is turning to the captain and look, he looked at me and me looking at him said at the same time we're like these poor people and then yeah. and then all of a sudden he said wait a minute wait a minute the those poor people the most important thing is their safety it, yes it, it's eventually getting to the destination we don't have to be the people getting them there yes i was yes. like wow what a statement 
as long as we, we accomplish this mission, but not in the way that we thought was the proper way. And and that's what I glean from this book is sometimes you don't land where you think you're going to land, but eventually you get to your goal. But it may not be exactly the direction you think. Sometimes it's a varied path. Absolutely. And when you mentioned about the person um, having to retake the course, etc., I'm brutally honest in this book because I think it was the only way to reflect Dad's true personality. He always said, he said, I was only an average pilot. He said, middle to the bottom of the course, and I just persevered, and, and, and he used to say, plugged away at it. He, he <laughs> continued to study and work. And he was not outstanding, although people who I've interviewed have said, oh, no, that's rubbish, he, he was great. But in his eyes, and even in his assessment reports, and I'm brutally honest because there was one course that he failed, and I think that stayed with him, um, and there were circumstances surrounding that, but he never said anything, oh, it was because of this or because of that. He failed a course, and he persevered. And this is the point we keep coming back to. It's it's a journey. It isn't a direct one-way highway all the time. But funnily enough, those diversions sometimes can be the most interesting uh, instances that life throws us. We just don't realize it at the time. It's very true, you know, in, in your father looking back at that, you looking back at any of the, the challenges you've had and the challenges I had, we all have had, uh, we learn from those. Instead of dwelling on that, what can we do different to make the outcome different? And, uh, and that's what he's done in his whole life. Absolutely. And by me looking at those, those failures and failings and shortcomings, as we all have, I think I was able to give a more honest opinion because the first six chapters I actually wrote 10 years ago from the my father perspective and then I thought no the feel of this is wrong that it'll end up being my dad's superman and he wasn't he was he had foibles he had shortfalls he had shortcomings so that's when I went back and started writing it again from a removed third person perspective and that allowed me to step outside the box and look at him and say you know he did fail that or that wasn't the best thing and I mentioned when he he went to Korea, some of his misformation rejoins, etc., and that, because he was the first one to say, you know, we all make mistakes, but we must learn from them. And he, he used to say, if you think you know it all in aviation, you're starting to get dangerous. I'm, I'm glad you said, let's say that again. If you think, <laughs> you think he, you know. he, oh, he had some wonderful, wonderful <laughs> sayings, but one of them was, if you're starting to think that you know it all in aviation, you're getting dangerous. That is so true. That is so, you know, Owen, you have, what, 16,000 hours? Uh, About and, 19 now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and, yeah. and think about it. You, you, you're you still learning, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Every day, um, every sector I do, I have a, a notepad and I just put a point or two down, something I, I could have done better or whatever. Not to be harsh on myself, because uh, you can beat yourself up about these things too, but just so that you keep throwing the, the challenge down to yourself to try and be at the top of your game. Uh, and it might just be something that I was late with a transition call or, or something like that, but something I wasn't happy with. And on the drive home, it might be two or three points, but I'm yet to have a drive home, you know, where I haven't got anything to chip myself about. There's always one or two or three little things. So um, after 19,000 hours, I don't think I'll ever get to the um, point where I drive home from work and there's nothing on that notepad. 
And that's a great point for those listening that, that just have 50 hours right now in their logbook and they're looking at a long career. Just remember, Owen, who's getting close to 20,000 hours, is uh, is still learning and still critiquing himself and trying to make himself better, as you should do, no matter what career you're in, if you're listening to this. You should constantly try to make yourself better at what you do and at your inside person, at your in yourself, you know, you have to try to make yourself better and grow. Uh, just because you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, doesn't matter what age, you should continually try to learn and to grow. And that's that's another part of the story that is really important. Your father did not stop growing later in his life. No, no. He um, even when he retired from the air ambulance, he he was a voluntary instructor for one of the uh, flying clubs here. And he also used to go off and fly the occasional chartering DC-3 aircraft. But he um, he never, I think, uh, lost that drive or passion for aviation. It was something that, as I said, he always felt it was a privilege. He never thought he was going to have the opportunity uh, to do it. And if I can relate one anecdote, which I, I, I find very significant on so many levels, when he was in his last weeks of his life, he was terminally ill. We had some men turn up in suits, and he thought they were from the, the military, the Department of Defence, but they weren't. They were lawyers, and they came into the house, and he soon ascertained through the conversation that these weren't Defence Force people talking to him. These were, were lawyers, and they said, look, you were part of the, the troops that went into Hiroshima shortly after the atomic bomb. We're looking at establishing a class action against the Australian government for putting you in harm's way. And he paused, and I was in the next room listening, and he said, in harm's way, are you serious? And they went, yes. He said, look, I signed up to take a bullet when I was 18. He said, "Mine, I'm very fortunate. My bullet took about 50 years to get here. That didn't happen to some of my friends. So I've owned a house, flown airplanes my whole life, and raised a family as a result of my military service. You want me to now turn around and sue the people that made that possible? And they said, it's not as simple as that. He said, it's exactly as simple as that. Get out of my house. And I always remember that he had a few weeks to live, but he still maintained his focus and his um, appreciation of what his military service had done for him. He didn't take a soft option of, gee, I might be able to get on the bandwagon here for a, a lawsuit. And so whenever I have a moral conundrum or a choice to make, I I relate that story to myself and say, what would he do? And that's a that was a great story. And I tell you, that, that speaks to one word, integrity. And yes. it truly, yes. truly is a great example of integrity. And and you know, we you know, sometimes we forget about that value. And that's one of the most important values in life. And yes, honesty and integrity, absolutely. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, Owen, uh, I want to say one thing. I, myself, and I know there's people here listening right now that are being inspired by this conversation. I, uh, I was inspired by something you said earlier uh, about writing this book about your father years ago. Um, you know, I have, you know, half a book done about my father. Uh, I'm sure there's other people out there listening right now that have ri- have a book inside them. Uh, and that are writing and and just have put it down. You know, you put it down for a while, you brought it back, and it's doing great. No matter how long you've placed it there, it it's still there. That book is still there. 
I'd encourage you, if you're listening, do like Owen's done and, and pick it up and start writing and, and finish it. Yeah. And I, if I can expand on that, you're absolutely right, Carl. My brother actually went into the creative writing field. He, he lives in the United States and he um, has been an editor, a proofreader. He's taught creative writing at university. And he always would say to me when I was frustrated that, oh, gee, I've just got to finish Dad's book. And he just calmly would say, when the time is right, the time is right. Do not force it. And that's exactly what happened with this book. And and my wife said the other day, if you'd finished it 10 years ago when you first started it, she said, in those 10 years and the books you've written and the 400 published articles you've written have made you a better writer. She said, in that 10 years, more veterans have come out of the woodwork. In that 10 years, the internet and the resources have expanded. So all these things unbeknown to me at the time other than the frustration of the book not being finished actually contributed i think to it ending up being a better product when you're there and it's sitting half written it's very frustrating but you're you're absolutely right when the time is right my brother was correct when the time is right that the story will come and it will come easily if you're forcing it it's probably the time to push it to one side yeah i guess you you, you don't pick fruit until it's ripe and, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And and you can fill in the time in other ways if you're not necessarily hitting the keyboard. You can ponder the research. You can do other tasks which will ultimately make that book better, but never beat yourself up about it. When the time is right, the time is right. You know, Owen, I wonder, what, what was the most difficult part about writing this book? What what chapter, what portion of it is? What was your biggest challenge? Uh, I think... Um, in two ways, there were different challenges. I think in a purely writing sense, at times sourcing individuals from certain periods. And it was, once again, it was amazing. There was a, a period when he was a mechanic or training to be an Air Force mechanic that he was learning to fly privately. And I could not track down really anyone from that era. And I thought, gee, this is going to be a bit of a hole. And out of the blue, a chap wrote to me with a, about a 30-page letter which detailed the whole time and I got on to him and he'd been through the exact same journey. He'd been out barnstorming with my father in biplanes and that and he just filled in the details. So at times you, you struck roadblocks in such a diverse career that you thought, gee, where will I find resources for this? But in a more, a, a deeper sense, and it was a, a core question when I began writing it, was to reconcile the man I was reading about in the records and the man that I knew. He was a very quiet individual. My mother never opened a door of any description. He opened it for her every time. He always wore a hat and he tipped his hat whenever a lady walked in the room and he always stood up. Very quiet, very well-mannered. But you can imagine reading the combat reports of a commando unit or a fighter squadron what they detail, and to reconcile those. It took me quite a while to to work out that these were the same people almost. But it, it, they most definitely were. And the more I read, the more I understood they were the same people. He was tenacious. He just redirected the way that tenacity was um, utilised in his life later on. Well, Owen, I want everybody to read this book and learn about that tenacity and learn about Philip and and uh, 
And and I think in in all of us we can we can find something that's really really important in this book. You know, what's interesting as as I was reading this and as we were speaking, I thought to myself, you know, I started in the whole you know podcasting world about five years ago. And Owen, I've I've read a lot of your articles. Owen's up is is an outstanding writer, but he also is able to explain things and turn turn normal everyday events into great stories. A real wordsmith. And you know, five years ago, I said to myself, "How am I ever going to be able to get someone like Owen's up on, or you know, some of the astronauts I've had for our interviews, etc." And and I said to myself, "I'm just going to keep moving forward. Someday, who knows? It may happen, and it has." And uh, you know, it, it's neat in in our lives to have people that we look up to that suddenly we're able to talk to directly. So don't ever give up on your dreams. You'll find that you'll be interviewing the, the, the author that you thought you'd never have the interview with, like Owen's up in my case, and, and some of the astronauts that I've, I've looked up to and, and the people in aviation I've looked up to. No matter what, that persistence, perseverance, and a little bit of luck goes a long way. And, uh, and, and this story right here, without precedent, is that story is it, it it tells that it tells that tale of somebody who who kept moving forward and, and no matter how much they got knocked back and and you know what i no matter how many critics you have in life just keep moving forward and uh and i think that's a really important part of this story uh, about there's many many important parts about this story but one of the things that was really cool for me is that you know oh and you're you know I'm here talking to you, which I never thought I'd be able to do uh, until I had this show, and uh, as, a, as a good example of never knowing what you can do in life. Uh, but this book is, is probably your most important work to me, because to me, it's a window that I can see through you into somebody else's life, and that's your father. And I can learn much about you through that, and also I can glean much about my life and about life in general and get some, some really good advice from somebody who's not even here but I'm able to speak directly to them and listen to them through this book. And that's what I love about Without Precedent. So, Owen, I really appreciate you doing this and, and bringing a, a, you know, a, a dream, my dream true, and then being able to have you on. Oh, look, it, Carl, it, it's fantastic chatting with you. It, it always feels more like you're chatting with a friend, even though we're on the other side of the, uh, <laughs> the world and, and the sun's up at one end. And I'm complaining about it cold winter's morning here because it's 40 degrees fahrenheit but i'd say on the east coast of the united states you get it somewhat cooler mm-hmm. yeah it's <laughs> but, it's uh, uh, been in the 90s here <laughs> yeah so it no you're absolutely right and i think that's the thing about the story is as we, we've touched on throughout this this chat is that it's persistence if, if he had have given up every time someone said no or every time that things didn't go to plan he'd still be cleaning the inside of furnaces out probably uh, we, we just have to keep our head down, persevere, and and make our dreams come true. And if we fall short, the old saying is aim for the stars, and if you fall short, it's still not too bad. You know, Owen, that, that's a great saying. I'm going to leave it at that, and I want to know how I can find this book. I know you can go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash up, but you also have a couple other places you can find it. You can go to Amazon and your website. What's the best place to find this book? Oh, look, I think probably the most universal site to find it is an ebook, a paperback, or a hardcover would be Amazon. Okay. And it's on the other the online book sites like Book Depository. Owensup.com has all the, the links to my books. But I, I'm generally finding that uh, Amazon or, or iTunes are the best places for people to find them universally. 
I tell you what, as a matter of fact, we'll do that. We're going to, that link, stuckmikeavcast.com slash Owen's up. We'll point it towards uh, the Amazon to your to your uh, page there, your author's page, so that people can find all your other works. Um, he does some great technical writing, too. Owen, you do some great technical writing, so make sure you check that out, too. Uh, Owen, as always, you know, we talk about always doing a short interview, and I, I wish I could, <laughs> I could uh, speak with you for, for many more hours and... Uh, um, but, uh, you know, one thing I want to comment on, I want you to speak directly towards is that there's a many young folks in your country, in Australia, uh, many aviators that are listening to this right now and that listen to aviation careers podcast that'll be listening to this interview. And, uh, you know, as of late, they've been writing in and discussing how it's a little more difficult where you are. It's not like in the United States where there's jobs everywhere. Uh, what would you say to somebody that's in Australia and dealing with some of the challenges there about becoming an airline pilot? What would you say to those individuals? I, I think the, the lesson we've been talking about is, is perseverance because the, it's in a state of flux. General aviation probably isn't necessarily the career path it once was and cadet schemes are, are more prevalent. But I always relate, I look at the people I got my first job with and everyone who remained gainfully employed from that first employer, no matter how few hours we were flying, has ended up in an airline position. Those that said, times are tough, I'm just going to take a year off to go to Europe, or I'm just going to take a year off, never got there. So even when it seems, I won't say a state of despair, but when it seems that it, it, it's too steep a hill to climb, just keep going. Any progress, albeit slow progress, is progress, and you're remaining within the industry. Don't walk away and say, look, I'll have a year off in Europe or a, a sabbatical. Just persevere. Stay in there. Stay around aviation. And my experience has been that everyone that did that ultimately did get to where they wanted to go. Well, oh, and that's some great advice. And, and again, thank you so much for joining us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast. I know it's very early in the morning, and you you have to get going to to make those sandwiches for the family, uh, which <laughs> is very important. You know, Owen is a, is quite the father and the and the family man, and uh, just a, a terrific person. Uh, Owen'sup.com, stuckmikeavcast.com slash Owen'sup is uh, is where you can find him. Uh, it's really been been a pleasure. And uh, if you want to find out more about all that he does, go out there. He's a speaker and author. But most importantly, I want you to go out and check out this book, Without Precedent, by Owen's Up. And it, and it is. It's the true story about a commando fighter pilot in Australia's first Purple Heart. And we really appreciate Owen bringing this story to us. You know, normally uh, I, I end my episode uh, in Aviation Careers Podcast with, with this, to do, do something today, do something now to move forward in your life, in your career, in your flying adventure. Do something now to move forward. Take that one step, pick up this book, learn something new, listen to a podcast, watch a movie about aviation, Look at Owens Up's website, but do something today to move forward. And folks, we'll talk to you next episode. Safe flying. Don't forget to check out his book. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. 
Members of the Stock Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.